Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Oh, and then I, I say we're doing it, big button, guy. Yeah, you say hit the record button. It's your fault now. The cornucopia of discussion we just had cuts off immediately. Yeah, we were having a really Sorry. fun, delightful conversation we, just before you we get real silent. Mo- motherfuckers get real silent when they yeah. Yeah, the pre-pod better than the actual pod. It's just for us, though, for you know? That's just a little treat. It's oh, just laughing a little with all treat. my friends, they're just right over there. Right, <laughs> right, yeah, right out of frame. <laughs> right out of frame. And they don't have mics. And they don't have cameras. And they're not real, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they may or may not actually exist. They may or may we not have known to, them. Yeah. I don't well, remember hey, if they left me yes. that book or if they just left it on the wall. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Trilove. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find the Trilon itself at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Get tickets and showings and other cool ways to support the Trilon at Trilon.org, including calendars and neat things that uh, that will let you know what's coming up at the theater. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Sorry for not looking through your, excuse me, sorry for looking through your green book. I just wanted to know, know a little bit more about you. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Harry Mackin, and just a quick disclaimer for this episode, everything I'm about to say to you is going to be refracted through your own sense perceptions, memories, and desires, uh, and it's going to create a sort of gap between the two of us that's going to make it epistemologically impossible to tell whether I've actually ever said anything to you, or if I'm just sort of a fragment of your imagination reconstructing and repurposing your life uh, in a way that makes sense to you. Um, so if you want to continue to do that on social media, you can follow me on, uh, at Twitter at Punish Take. My name's Aaron and I'm going to be real with you folks. I could beat the shit out of that kid at ping pong. Not even, he I'm was, not even good at ping he pong. Was not a pro. I'm not one of those guys who talks a big game. Frankly, I'm bad at ping pong. Not even a question. Not, not a question. You Save can find me on Twitter at RB, please. Uh, and through the haze of mist and time and running water and electricity, I see there's a guest joining us. To, who is that? Who is that lost in the mist? Hello, hello. I'm back once again. Uh, Natalie Marlin. Uh, and you you really can't be giving watches to your podcast guests. They they represent eternity and you just keep giving broken ones. It's, it's frankly getting kind of old. I have like six of them at this point. Listen, um, and I can- have so much merch to offload, Natalie. <laughs> I appreciate you taking too. one for every single visit. <laughs> anything good? It's a, it's a watch that represents how long the podcast is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can find me on Twitter as Natalie's not in it. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining in. Natalie, uh, you can find Natalie's previous episodes, one of our most prolific guests, uh, both in terms of how many times she's been on the podcast and how much she's actually talked and written about the movies that she's discussed with us. Uh, you can find that all in our backlog. You can find plenty of Natalie's pieces on Parisphere.org, the Trilon blog, including one about the movie we're about to discuss today, which, segue, uh, played as part of, it's one of the final films in the 15th annual Neo-Noir Festival. I believe there are a couple of movies left. You can check them out at Trilon.org, movies at the, at the Heights and at Trilon. Um, I will spare any more words about this to Aaron, uh, the co-host and friend who will give us his patented Aaron Grossman summary, which always starts with his catch phrase. Yes, indeed, folks.
Hey, too, Jason. Uh, we are talking about Long Day's Journey in Tonight, 2018 film directed by uh, B. Gann. Uh, it is not at all based on the 1956 Eugene O'Neill play, completely separate. Uh, the film tells a uh, nonlinear and, and largely kind of disjointed story. Um, it follows a man named Luo Huang Wu, Huang Wu, yes, who returns to his hometown of Kylie uh, for his father's funeral. Um, while there, he begins to track down uh, a woman that he used to know or thinks that he used to know uh, named Wan Shi Wen. Um, as he looks for her, uh, his dreams uh, and his memories begin to kind of fold into reality. Uh, Huang Ju plays uh, Luo Hong Wu uh, and Tang Wei plays Wan Shi Wen. Uh, the film is notable. Uh, we'll talk about it uh, for its uh, final scene, which is this kind of uh, 59 minute dreamlike unbroken uh, shot. Uh, that kind of makes up the the very last shot of the film. Uh, that's what I got. This film's hard to summarize, uh, so it's, I'm going to leave it there. You know, what, you know what it is? It is one man haunted by the face of the prettiest woman ever put to cinema, Tang Wei. Being yeah, it really is one of those things, right? Where it's kind of like every single Tang Wei movie ends up being about how Tang Wei is so pretty that she makes everybody in the movie <laughs> obsessed with her. And it's like, wait, what's going on? Is there some sort of like, like? extra cinematic power that's altering the plots of these movies it's like this must she must have been stunt casting in uh like decision to leave right where he was just like oh yeah we just need to get the the fucking long day's journey into night woman for this it's it's bygone knew it park chan wook knew it michael mann knew it everybody knows it i'm so glad you brought up michael mann too we cannot forget about black hat black hat stands have to stick together that's right uh unfortunately i cannot forget black hat um this is a movie that uh, i've only seen for the first time as of watching it for this podcast i must call attention to the fact that natalie i think you are your logs of this film on letterboxd going back at least a few years maybe to 2018 19 I think are like the greatest number of movies I've seen somebody like, excuse me, the greatest number of times I've seen any person log one movie sans like, you know, the yearly house and, you know, screen rewatches and stuff. Uh, what keeps bringing you back to this movie? Why is it, why does it stick so much for you? It's funny because I have thought that I had seen this more times than I actually had. And I have like, there are movies that I've logged more than this, but um, so uh, this uh, to get, to give my background, um, I had been like, as I had heard of this movie's existence, I had been looking forward to it like way back in 2018, where I think it premiered at Con. Uh, and that was partially because uh, in 2016, I uh, came across uh, Bygone's first film, uh, Kylie Blues, um, and mostly at the time had just seen it uh, talked about as a, a film that kind of had this similar uh, mystique of um, just the technical achievement put behind it, because that film also has this. 42 minute long take that makes up like the bulk of its like climactic like middle part um and i had grown like hypnotized by the idea of like this movie that i could not track down or find and then eventually i saw it as part of um shout out to my other favorite uh cinematic home the brattle in cambridge massachusetts uh they ran that movie uh kylie blues as part of their best of 2016 series and i was just completely floored by it like i I was somebody who like still hadn't really like dipped her toes much into slow cinema or anything with like that level of surreality, like really kind of like the deepest end of the pool that I got into was like uh, David Lynch stuff. Um, And so it was kind of like this real like bracing moment of just like opening up the kind of like 
ellipticism and like opaqueness that slow cinema could like offer in that regard. Um, and I became like really deeply obsessed with that movie. Um, and so when I had heard that he was following it up with something like this and I had, I had had the, um, structural conceit of this movie blown for me based on just the like effusive, like first reactions, uh, that were coming out of Khan. um, that already like ratcheted my expectations, like up to the highest level because I was like, Oh, this sounds like he is like taking everything he built on from his first movie and like just taking it to the next level. And in mm-hmm. a lot of ways it really is, um, I was lucky enough to see this. Um, what uh, Aaron didn't mention is that um, one of the notable things about this movie is that uh, the entire long take that is in that second half is um, shot and intended to be released in 3D, uh, which unfortunately Trilon's projection capabilities were not able to manage. But um, the um, initial screenings that I had went to in Boston when the film had come out in 2019 were ones that um, did have that switch over um, fully like in, into the projection. Super and it jealous was, of you for that. Yeah, it is. I, I, every single time I tell somebody this, like the um, excitement that I got just like sitting in the theater, knowing that it was coming and like having the scene where he like sits down in the theater and everybody's putting on the 3d glasses and being like, Oh, it's about to hit. And the very first thing that pops in 3d is the title card. The title which of is, the movie. Unbelievable. What if, what of the, the biggest flexes? Um, I also love, uh, one thing that is not present in, uh, this DCP, but present in that is, a. Uh, title card at the beginning of the movie which i really love is like a cheeky thing which is this is not a 3d movie however when our protagonist puts on his 3d glasses please join him in doing the same um which is that that i think (laughs) you're like what the fuck am i about (laughs) to watch um but no from the first watch of um this i was just kind of like similarly blown away and to a degree where i had felt um I I really, I did not entirely grasp what I was watching the first time. I I mostly was just kind of bowled over by, like, the technical achievement of it all and just how fluidly and how just emotionally overwhelming the whole experience was. Um, And I think a lot of my my own first watch tended to be more on just kind of, like, acclimating to what the movie was trying to express thematically and structurally – um, and as I've kind of gone back to it over time, um, I saw it a second time in the theaters uh, in 2019 while I could still see it in 3D. Uh, I saw it one other time showing it to uh, my girlfriend, Abby, also guest, frequent guest to the pod. Um, and then I saw it twice as part of this series because it had been some time before I'd seen it in a theater. I wanted to take advantage of it. And it's um, one of the things that we'll get into is it's incredible how this is a movie that um, on the surface... Um, feels like one of the things that has been like uh really like something that i've noticed is from the first watch i've in all subsequent like rewatches i've had every single like beat of the movie burned into my memory and like it's very easy to map it out because the the core beats of the movie as we've talked about with like the synopsis are pretty easy to chart out but it's like the depth of each of those beats and the layer of detail that is put into it is like really deceptively deep um and I think uh, in watching it in like rapid succession, I watched it uh, the Monday and Tuesday I played at Trilon. I kept picking out like new things that are like these like really subtle cues that just only further like enrich a lot of these ideas about um, obsession and idealization and um, the way that that manifests in this kind of like 
unreal heightened dream state of reality. Um, so yeah, I am, I'm really thrilled to get to talk about this, especially because like on these recent rewatches, I was like, is this like my favorite movie now? Like, I mean, that is- yeah, as an outsider reading what you've read, excuse me, reading what you've written and, so, and knowing like the provenance of this movie for you, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it must be one of your favorite movies, if not like the favorite. I wish personally that this had been like at least an, if not the introduction for me to slow cinema. I, I mean, I must personally, I attribute that to movies like Damnation, which we watch for this podcast. And, um, well, and that's only since 2019 and Uncle Boon Me, uh, and a few other, a page upon where set the cool movies. Uh, just, I wish that this had been that introduction for me because it is in ways and maybe I'm looking back with like the benefit of hindsight, having a little, a few more of the, um, I won't say, uh, better or worse, but just slightly more challenging slow cinema movies in, under my belt. Now, this one is like, I, again, not in a diminutizing way. It's fun. Like there is a sincere joy in knowing like where, knowing what happens in this movie and like how the technological aspects of it play with the narrative aspects. Um, I did not know, like all, all that I knew about the movie was that it had a 59 minute long take and that Cody and Natalie really liked it. And that's pretty much it. I had no idea about the switch at the middle where it's supposed to be 3d. I had no idea that it was framed as an entire dream sequence or that the character puts on 3d goggles and then boom title card, which is just, I mean, for it to happen an hour and 11 minutes into the movie and still just generate this intense feeling of like, for lack of a better term, hype and just joy that, wow, they're really going for this shit. And then that it moves so cleanly and hyper really from there. Um, and that's to discount everything that happened before, which was like a more than palatable and more than serviceable slow cinema, uh, you know, fading memory and twisting dreams type plot that while like twisting and, you know, intentionally nonlinear and fragmented is still like, you can still put together the bones of a story from there and you can just sort of soak in the vibes from there. So. I feel really lucky to have seen this movie at all uh, and really lucky to have had like a little bit more of the experience under my belt before watching it. But I think this would uh, like have been a great stage setter for me to try watching more challenging, less like immediately engaging slow cinema than this one. Um, And I don't know if that's like, I I don't, I think I was late to the slow cinema game based on the number, excuse me, compared to the other folks who were on this podcast. Um, You know, having what 2019, 2020 was the first time I like started to watch these movies. I still think I'm cresting the hill on like knowing what they're going for and feeling ready to watch and interpret them when I see them. But this one I think would have been a real great, like this is the basis foundation. This is like a really entertaining movie at a base level. And also it's using the very specifics of the form to do a a specific thing on top of what I already know about movies, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, I agree with, with what you're saying there too, but I also, and Natalie, you pointed this out in lost in the dream, which was your Parisphere blog, uh, which I highly recommend everybody go read. It's fantastic. Um, but like, this is a, it's a great introductory piece in, in a lot of ways, but also it's so deeply indebted to like Wong Kar Wai and Apachat Pung, we cool. And like, knowing that those debts exist and knowing that it's playing in that space actually like really helped enhance this movie for me. Right. Um, I, uh, I went into this movie also similarly semi unprepared. I knew about the 59 minute take. Um, I, I'm almost a little bit frustrated that like the 59 minute take has like really um, like eclipsed any other discussions about this movie, particularly because in my mind, like the, 
original hour before the 59 take minute starts is so important for contextualizing that scene and contrasting and juxtaposing that scene that like without like anybody could just shoot for 59 minutes right well it would be very difficult like let's not <laughs> but but like the the formalism of the movie the the message of the movie is so informed by the juxtaposition between the two styles of, in which the movie was shot um and sort of appropriately i guess i had a, a really interesting experience watching this right i went alone and i watched it at the trilon um like this last weekend and honestly for the first hour or so i was pretty frustrated with it right it's so slippery it's so difficult to grasp i was like i um, because I knew I was going to be recording on the podcast and because I knew, uh, Natalie like knows so much about it. Maybe I was a little intimidated and I, I was like, I spent a lot of time like constructing theories, right? I was like, okay, so clearly Tang Wei is, is sort of a, uh, she's a dream figure. She's, she's maybe his mom or a representation of his mom. Wildcat is like maybe his son or, slash his friend or like maybe symbolically a child in the sense that it brought him into this world of crime. Um, you know, I was, I was, creating and following all of these threads and like trying to piece together the mystery of what this movie was saying, right? And kind of getting lost in it. And then the dream sequence happens and it's like, oh yeah, dog, like that was the point. Like that was how you were supposed to be feeling about all of this. And now the the cathartic reality of this unbroken shot is as tempting to you as it is to the main character and as sort of like dangerous to be subsumed by as it is for the main character, right? And like all of a sudden, the storytelling of the first half is so it's like a it's like a trap that springs into um like action in the second half when all of a sudden now you can spend the rest of the movie endlessly interpreting and reinterpreting and becoming obsessed with uh, the characters that you've just seen and the people that you've just watched um, just as the main protagonist is, right? It's a movie that really um, acutely trains you to uh, learn how you should be watching it. And I like, I cannot wait to see it again because I can't wait to see the first uh, act or the first half again. And I know that like, I, my understanding is, is going to be so transformed even then. But, but even after a first watch, I think that like this movie is doing something that is like philosophically fascinating to me about sort of like what it, I mean, everything Natalie said about obsession and about um, memory, but also just sort of about like what it means to reconstruct an identity and a narrative for your life out of your memories and perceptions and how difficult that is and how much we bring to that and how much we alter what we have seen and what we have done for our own benefit or for other people's benefit to the point where um, it's so hard to know what our lives have been and the uh, sort of melancholic necessity of doing that. Um, I know that Natalie and I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like you have sort of a, um, cynical interpretation of this ending or a, a sad one. Um, I agree with yours, but I also find it sort of like almost necessary in a way that is really beautiful to me. So it'll be fun to talk about. But yeah, just to, that's just to say like definitely the best movie I've seen this year so far. Um, I'd probably not really that surprising to longtime listeners that I would feel that way about it. But um, I, it also just did something that like I have not seen in a movie that often, right? Where like usually I know, right, when what a movie is going to be and what it's going to do to me pretty early on, right? Like one of my favorite movies is uh, Cora Ada's um, 
Mabarosi, which is a fantastic movie, but also like, you know, about 20 minutes in what that movie is. Whereas here it was like, oh, I don't like this movie half an hour in. And then I walked out, I was crying and I like had to go home and like lay down, you know, and like, it's amazing that the movie got me there. Um, And it's so heartening that like a movie like this can come out in 2018, I guess. So yeah, um, can't wait to watch it again. Can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, Tide, uh, just Trilove lore followers will appreciate knowing that it's Tide, I believe, for the most recently released movie that we've covered as part of a normal episode, not, you know, extracurricular or whatever with Mandy, I believe, which also released in 2018. We've covered like Detective Pikachu and a few other movies as part of Puff Puff Movie Pass. But like as far as movies that played at the trial on that we discussed because they played at the trial on, I think this is tied for the second or I forget you know, actual dates yeah. of release, but year release. Also anyway. um, shout outs to, uh, by Gan, who's like 34 years old for giving me the worst existential crisis immediately after walking you know out of this movie. We, and we, I looked we, it up and gotta, I was like, Oh, that motherfucker's my age. And I was like, gotta, Oh we God, gotta, we got to find joy in, in the shared uh, accomplishments and successes of our generation. I, <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I do want to, because uh, Aaron, you jumped when, um, when Harry talked about how it's a little, maybe depressing or annoying that the 59 minute take sort of like has dominated the conversation around this movie, you know, critically and culturally you sort of, you chimed in for that. Did you have thoughts about the beginning chunk of this movie that we want to consider before? Cause I feel like naturally we should talk uh, about the first part before getting to the transition in the second part. Well, my thoughts are kind of the, I think the, my thoughts at the beginning are kind of tied up and you know, like it's kind of hard to separate it from my thoughts of the, take at the end just because they are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of feeding into one another. I'll say that I think that like the the first, you know, half of this film uh, or, or so kind of justifies the second half in a weird manner. And that like, I think it's, you know, I, I was also walking and not walking into that. I watched this on streaming, but I was also watching this movie. I think similarly uh, a little apprehensive. I think that like whenever you hear about a movie, you know, I'd heard about this film before I'd like, seen the poster for this like like a weird memory of just seeing the poster for this all over like letterbox or it's something, a fantastic poster it must it's be a great noted. poster very striking uh uh images and whatnot um i you know i i think that it like you kind of need a movie that's doing what this film is doing to kind of justify uh, uh what it is doing from a technical standpoint and i think that there are a lot of movies that make these kind of big swings that that it doesn't often work um, and I think that like, I don't know, I feel a little like forgiving towards that sort of stuff. I think it's, it's kind of fine to make those big swings. Um, but you know, I spent the first half of this movie, like, you know, knowing, Hey, there's this, this big long shot coming up. Uh, you know, it's going to be this kind of, you know, dreamy one taker. Uh, and I, I think that like the first half of this movie really does, uh, juxtapose, you know, interestingly against the the latter half in a way that I found kind of fascinating, but I also, like Harry in the moment was quite confused about what's going on. I think that like, if I do have like maybe one criticism of this film, it's that like, I think some of the stuff in the first half doesn't work as well for me. And like the second half puts a lot of those pieces together, but I think that it doesn't put all of them together. I think like the, the frankly, the, the kind of like gangster subplot is kind of, it feels slightly amateurish in a way uh, to me. It it feels a little, I, I hate to use this comparison because I know two of the people I'm recording this podcast with hate this movie. Reminded me a little bit of Heart 8 and a little bit of like young filmmaker making a, kind of a crime film uh, in a weird way. I think that like 
there are there are uh, references to other films that this movie is making to Hitchcock and to, to Blue Velvet and whatnot um, that like tie into those subplots. I think the whole thing about like the movie theater and then dumping the body in a mine feels like a bit of a stretch in a way that I can maybe try and explain away with dream logic, but it doesn't quite work neatly for me. Um, but other than that, I, I yeah, I, I, I like the first half of this movie quite a bit. And I think that the second half kind of makes it work yeah. in a weird way. To, to, to honor the memory of this movie, this last 59 minutes of this podcast, I will not edit at all. It will go out as completely and entirely as recorded. Um, Natalie, you may continue. Yeah, it's interesting um, because this is kind of the the discussion we've got going on right now is kind of like what I've seen as a very kind of like common first reaction to people coming into it as like first time viewers in that like the first half is almost kind of like deliberately in some ways like the it, it, it the ways in which it like telegraphs itself and presents itself are such that you don't really particularly like know what is happening or you like get a sense of what is happening in the sense that logically the way that it follows is all pretty linear and simple to follow, but there doesn't seem to be like a lot beneath the surface. And like, there are the obvious like things that it sets up, like the, the breadcrumbs that it sets up in terms of the very deliberate, like callbacks that are happening in the, in the second take be that like, um, the like red hair and the torch that Sylvia Chang is carrying or like the house that spins. Um, but um, there's a lot of it that in the first, the first time that you're watching it, you're almost like not really sure what you should be paying attention to. And so there's a lot that kind of just like slips by and goes under the radar. Um, one thing that I will note is that um, I think that part of um, like how I have uh, come to it, cause I also kind of like, I will admit the first time that I watched this, I spent the first half of the movie not entirely knowing what was going on. But um, for me, it was like the familiarity with uh, the way that the long take and like Kylie Blues like does something similar where it completely recontextualizes all these like threads of information you're given throughout the movie. Um, That was kind of like my guiding hand through it. But like as I've gone through and revisited it, it's been the kind of thing where like weirdly the like first half of the movie has taken on this like really like uh like this this really strong power to it in terms of how it has its own sense of like internal rhythms and like emotional like synchronicity that is like it feels like its own complete almost like self-contained entity to the point where if this were a movie that would uh like culminate in the sequence where he goes into the movie theater and uh puts on the 3D glasses in a sense like that could be in its own way, a complete movie. Like the, the threads there are so like neatly tied and put together um, that they, um, they, they really kind of like feel like a complete um, coherent package. And I, it's also um, there are uh, just a lot of like really interesting, like recurring threads in there. Um, I, I don't want to like go fully deep into like, like I'm going to do like long days journey tonight explained. Um, <laughs> but, explained. Uh, like there there's um some like really subtle things just like happening throughout in terms of um like uh i'll I'll throw out two of my favorites uh that i've like picked up on these recent uh rewatches which um are uh like probably my favorite sequence in the early stretch is um the one in which uh he visits the woman in prison uh which is like to me like just one of the most like fantastic scene gorgeous like scenes um but like with, with with that there was like 
these like subtle inflections of like this own kind of like reality itself is this like dreamlike state and they're uh like behind both of the characters like the walls are slowly turning like that is it is like the the house that spins as they're talking about it and like the actual like mise-en-scene of the set that they're on is doing that from a fixed camera angle mm-hmm. which is like i hate to bring this up but it like it reminded me of like true detective or something right <laughs> where it's like all of a sudden like russ sees like a fucking spiral or something in the background and it's like oh these guys are like fucked up like they're there's something going on in their heads even in the sort of ostensible reality of the sequence yeah well th- that's also the thing is that it like that scene is like a really important like glimpse into the interiority too. Cause like one of the things that I, I picked up on the like walls moving like in a pretty early watch of this, but um, this time around, I noticed that like uh, the background, the backdrop, but when it uh, cuts to Luo is like, it's flooding. It's the flooded house. Like that is what he's carrying with him. Like at every step of the way. Um, and the other thing that is like currently blowing my mind uh, that um, I only just pulled out this like fifth watch um is that uh, the song that plays in the end credits, the Japanese lullaby, is a leitmotif that recurs like throughout the movie. Um, it's uh, most prominently the scene where they're in the movie theater and she's eating, uh, Tongwei's eating the pomelo fruit and crying at like the scene in the movie. But like in two different places in the present, Luo was just like either listening to it or has set the song as his ringtone. And it's this, this weird kind of like tip off of like, oh, this is this like, thing he has assigned value to it's this just, is this it's the fucking long goodbye right where like yeah. every single like music cue in that movie is the same song <laughs> yes is there is there a movie not that like the soundtrack like carries this but there is there a movie that just fucking the soundtrack just fucking hits at home as hard as this one like it, it's really it's every single time the music started up i was like God fucking damn it. Like that main that main song is like obviously just like such a fucking banger once the percussion starts coming in. But like the, the soundtrack in this is just like incredible and just like really helps with like everything that's going on. Like the, the scene you just talked about with the the scene in the in the jail with the, the visit is like already like hypnotic and like mesmerizing, but just the the fucking I don't even vaporwave ass soundtrack in the background of that thing is just incredible. I mean it's I can't remember the last time during a movie that I notice the soundtrack but not in like a bad or jarring way but in, in a yeah. way that like really helped it just kind of blend together yeah. it's incredible i'll leave i'll leave you with one more thing and then i'll hand it off to uh our other co-hosts who are very eager to jump in uh but uh one of the things that i also like really find uh adds to the very strict like uh cut between the segments of the film is that um each section of the film's like leitmotif is exclusive to that half of the film so like the one that we're talking about the one that is like those kind of like reverby like guitar notes and like the percussion that comes in is entirely in the like quote reality section of the film and then once it goes into the dream sequence that never reappears and then it's replaced by this like weird strange like growing like premonitory like choral notes like from like children that that feel very ominous and feel very foreboding for lack of a better word and that's kind of like what overtakes the rest of the movie um 
I, I do want to get more into the discussion about the ending, but we'll get into it when we get into the long take. So I'll, I'll yeah. hand it off from here. I think that's where it's best. I know it is a little bit folly to say like, we'll separate the part from the whole here, but I really do think the ending is going to deserve its own chunk of this podcast, so to speak. Uh, I do want to directly in response to Aaron, you brought up the music. I hadn't really thought about this, but I think it benefits the music, excuse me, the music, music benefits from this being a 2018 movie more than almost any aspect of it. Like it's beautiful. It's very well composed, very well shot. Um, and like, you know, the, the uh, quality of the film, I believe this was shot on film. I mean, well, part of it was at least, uh, like it, it benefits from the detail and richness and sort of like digital manipulation that it can have. But I think that the music in particular benefits because it allows it to like, like you say, this vaporwave ass soundtrack, this eighties sounding music that can like in itself host this entire nostalgic emotional feeling for another time, for another place for this, you know, I wasn't alive in the eighties, so to speak, but me in my, uh, you know, when I hear that music, I think of an eighties, I think of like that time in the world. I think of, uh, you know, what sort of changes were happening. And I think just like, uh, uh semiotically it benefits from that choice, uh, to like make it a, a, a synthy, largely synthy soundtrack. Um, sometimes calling back to more traditional, you know, tones and, and, uh, motifs like Natalie said, but in large part being very like ominous whoosh and vibes, you know, I think it really benefits from that. Um, I, I wanted to, because we were on the topic of the first half of this movie, uh, and where a lot of that, you know, is, is seated, so to speak. I don't know if I just like was more okay with the ambiguousness of the story or like the piecemeal and not really being able to plot, you know, put pieces where your mind wants them to be. I didn't ever get quite frustrated with the first half of this movie. Half again, about an hour and 11 minutes of a two hour and 18 some minute movie. Uh, I didn't ever feel like, you know, frustrated or like I was, uh, I was okay being lost, I guess with, I know these rough pieces. I know that he was somehow involved or that his friend was somehow involved with a gangster that was also involved with the woman, the woman and he crossed paths through that or, you know, whether intentionally or not. And there they are. They were, you know, on, on this crash course with one another, their interactions just color that relationship to me more than like add pieces together, so to speak, that by the time that the second half hits, it's like, Oh, all these pieces, again, we've already discussed this nature, the nature of like the first half of this, all these pieces of that relationship are just blown out, extruded, uh, and, and like, you know, sort of given some clarity in the second half, we'll talk about that more later, but, um, I did, I'd like just to share the like beginnings, excuse me, feelings about the beginning of this movie and like the first rough half or I felt it was much more uh, approachable. Like than I was anticipating, I was expecting something. I know Natalie, you talked about this in a few of your reviews and uh, in your piece for Parasphere, but like, it's very clear that uh be gone or bygone was it is like a man who's done his homework on the Wong Kar Wai side, on the We Are Aesthetical side, on the Tsai Ming Yang and uh, Hu Xiao Shen side, like, but sort of condensing those concepts into something more concrete, but less, I'm, I'm having a hard time exactly saying it, something more approachable, but less uh, like, you know, definable, I guess it's, 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 it's like the uh, nature of like blurring time in a Wong Kar Wai movie, like Chungking Express or 2048 is less the point of this movie than it is to me, at least in my interpretation is less the point of the first part of this movie than it is. See all sides of this relationship. He will like the main character will carry you through these different memories that he's having uh, in like the most devastatingly beautiful diegetic ways. And he'll like give color to that relationship. But then the clarity of like what that was to him and what, you know, who that person is only becomes clear once things are more explicitly in a dream state. And I think that's a fantastic part of the movie, but like, 
it makes me think more about the confines of that first, how I was feeling about the first half of that movie, how it's like those characters are again, another thing that Natalie pointed out, I think in one of your pieces, if, if not one of your reviews was how like uh, his unreliability as a narrator isn't just in the sections where it's clearly a dream state, but also like we have to think about the first half in retrospect, very um, like suspiciously, I guess, like when we see there's a shot where he's pushing his broken down truck down a uh, tunnel and then water like flowing over the camera lens just shifts to another half of the tunnel where as we like sort of truck back in, we see it's now a dream state and it's very diegetic. There's no whole like, you know, um, opacity or trans uh, trans transparency to the frame or anything like that. It's very clearly like we are using real pieces of the real world to transition to a dream state. And even that needs to be taken with some, with a grain of salt, so to speak of we're only seeing his recollection of a memory, even if we've transitioned very naturally from one thing to another. And then he has this like somewhat poetic discussion with the woman. Um, I, I don't know. It's just like the, the, in, in a, in a vacuum, if, if I was trying to, and I think it is a challenge too, but it, if I'm trying to like package the first part of this movie as its own thing, uh, it is defined by like that very clear, like, we're not going to tell you exactly what they were to each other because he is the one telling us this story because he like, uh, it, it is his subjective interpretation where the second half is, is clearer, but more ridiculous. Um, because it's like, he's no longer telling the story. It's more like out of his control, so to speak. I don't know if that makes any sense or I, I know Natalie, you had your hand up next, uh, or I forget who had their hand up next. We're all lost. I in did mist of dreams and time here. Um, did, does that tie into where you were going to go with that Harry? Yeah, I think so. I, um, I obviously don't totally agree just because I think the frustrations I had with was with, um, like. I knew that all of the symbolism I was picking up on, the sort of maddening recurring symbolism, water, the the flooded house, the color green, the color red, uh, Tang Wei, Tang Wei's relationship to his mother, um, his relationship to Wildcat, uh, his relationship to this gangster, whether or not they're the same person or aspects of one another. Um, all of that, I wanted all of it to become not necessarily more concrete, but I wanted to know the significance of the recurring symbolism to him um, because it was so clear that like the first half of this movie is like watching a um, a like filmed version of uh, the crying of Lot 49 where like you start to notice the fucking uh, the horns everywhere, right? Where it's like, oh shit, like there's the water. Like there's the light bulb going out. Like there's the, the gangster. There's the pomelo. Like you and obviously like very clearly as stated um the reason why you are seeing that is because you are the you are the character's perception right like and i think that like this kind of response to what you're saying um yeah i i know aaron thanks um uh what this response to what you were saying jason and also aaron what you had said about the beginning uh being sort of quote unquote amateurish i actually kind of really like that because like it's really important to me that uh, as Bygone makes clear, like this is a noir story in addition to everything else that it is. It's like, it, I think a lot about the fucking, um, that Dashiell Hammett quote where he said like, oh, none of my mysteries, the mystery was never the point. It was to put people in rooms and like Bygone like goes further and he's just like, yeah, what if I just cut out the middleman? And what if I just create a bunch of like, uh, like in media res, like scenes of the mystery, the femme fatale and the detective together and that's the entire movie instead of like putting the uh, scaffolding around that. And I think that like specifically the genre trappings, including the sort of like gangster 
uh, detective storytelling. The fact that like clearly this character is uh, basically Sam Spade, right? Like Luo Hong Wu, he's like this obsessed haunted detective who is going to like track down the truth no matter what. Uh, he has this like terrible contentious relationship with women, obviously. Um, something that really unlocked for me was uh, Natalie when you wrote about how in his first interaction with um, uh, Wan Kai Wen, uh, he like is abusive to her. He pulls her hair. He is trying, he's interrogating her, right? Under threat of torture to figure out where her partner is because he wants to kill her partner or at least ex exact revenge on her partner. Um, like knowing that about this protagonist, knowing that he is representative of this alpha male noir prototype or archetype is so important to understanding why his obsession is coloring the first half of this movie so much, why it seems to be overwhelming the realities of the scene, right? Like the fact that there's no hard distinction between reality and memory, I would argue. For instance, the one of my favorite things about this movie um, is that Hong Jae, the main character, is always the exact same age in every single one of the scenes, even though like the scenes are clearly taking place uh, across decades from one another, if not, uh, you know. He's got black um, hair in a lot of those flashbacks. I mean, okay, not that sure, that's a meaningful but difference. But. I didn't really notice that, to be honest. So, like, maybe that's true um, and probably. But, uh, they, sorry, go yeah, ahead. They, oh, they do have him looking, like, pretty different between the, like, present and the, the flashback really? stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I just... I mean, I I just, honestly, my eyes are not on that gentleman when so Tang Wei is part of the scene. Yeah, I'm not really fair. looking at, at him, to be fair. Um, they made him up to look more Silver Fox in the present stuff. It works. That's true. It works. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he looks great. It must be said. Um, but I, I think that, like, understanding the psychology of this character through the lens of noir and through the lens of basically, like, a very particular genre uh, toxic masculinity is super important understanding like why he's so domineering over his own memories and his dreams, right? Like this is a man who is in the pursuit of something, not just because he wants to understand it, but because he wants to control it, right? Because he, he feels in some ways like this anger at Tang Wei's character, Wang Kai Wen, not just because of what she did to him, but because of what she represents to him, which is, an aspect of his life that he cannot understand and therefore consume cleanly into a narrative about who he is as a person. And I think that like this movie follows his struggles to reconcile with that. And he arrives at um, his own conclusions by the end of this movie. Right. And it's left up to very deconstructive interpretation. Uh, what that conclusion uh, means about him and about his life. And I, um, I think that like the first half of this movie is super important in how it trains you in all of, in all of these different levels uh, to understand that about what's to come. Yeah, um, both Harry and Jason, you've given me like a lot of like really good things to chew over, especially on the first half of this. Uh, I do want to make like a quick note that I had forgotten to bring up before, which is that um for me, it's like the the whole like uh, gangster noir elements of this are almost kind of like they feel almost incidental and almost kind of flavor text. And also they're in a way building on um, something that like Bygone has spent like a lot of his uh, output, at least in feature length, uh, kind of deconstructing. So like the the backdrop of this uh, that I think is important context is uh, uh, Kylie Blue's like the the frame story is a very sort of like 
similar thing about an ex-gangster who's played by uh the man who plays uh Zuo, the like evil gangster in this one who appears a couple times uh who is actually bygone's uncle and actually an ex-gangster in real life and a lot of (laughs) a lot of that movie is drawing from like his own like life and like stories that he had told bygone um so that is kind of just to me that is like the context in which he is pulling all of these like details into the story um but i honestly i say all that while also saying like to me the actual like beats are less important than their abstraction and kind of what they're saying for sure. on, on, on a much like um, in terms of, I think one of the things that like has really struck me the more I've rewatched this and um, I, I want to call to attention what uh, Jason was saying about, um, I think it's really significant that the dream segment of this is a long take. Whereas the sort of, pseudo reality is what follows what we would consider more of a like continuous uh like it it follows like kind of a a continuity that like makes sense to a film viewer but it's also like deliberately alighted and like stretched out and there are a number of things where even just like the selective way in which we're like dropped into memories and the ways that memories are kind of cut up and decontextualized are themselves like these kinds of the ways in which like memories that you like vaguely recall or are choosing to like remember selectively kind of like enter into your head like several years removed to the point where they're no longer reality and it's more about these like very subjective emotional feelings that whoever is doing the remembering is bringing into it which is i think that that to me is the the key element and that to me is i think where a lot of the power and the recurring um the the recurring images or the recurring ways that things are structured i think about like how um one of one thing that i really love is the very first time you see um uh luo and wan shiwen romantically involved which happens out of nowhere like it like that that's what you see them interact twice once when he's interrogating her once when he's following her and she tells him to keep away and then the next time it's hard cut into the romance more classic noir right it's like, exactly <laughs> it's 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 uh it keeps all of these beats as these like larger emotional uh like these, these like emotional through lines uh but like um that that sequence or that shot ends with this like long pan over this kind of like opaque aquarium like thing and then that recurs later on when it's the last time that you see Wan Shi Wen on screen. Like that is mm-hmm. the sequence that it introduces. And it's this, it, all of these like images take on this, like it, it's all about the psychology that the person that you're doing the remembering through is bringing through. And it like is, is all about kind of like all of these ways in which he is interpreting. And like Harry said, feels like he's trying to gain some sense of control about it. Like the way that I've kind of started to interpret the first half of the movie is that it's his own way of making sense of these memories that are so incomplete that they can't be made yeah, sense of. It's a desperate reconstruction, right? And he's he's trying to like at least assemble it into something that resembles a narrative that he can build a personality out of or build conclusions out of. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um I also want to call into attention, um, because this is something that uh I had picked up and I'm just gonna throw this out there as like a Maybe this is an interesting thread. Maybe this isn't. Uh, but uh, 
I'm glad that uh, Jason brought up the Ho Shao Shen comparison specifically, because that was one that I didn't throw into the Paris piece because at the time it didn't occur to me, but it's like, it's really funny watching this after uh, watching Millennium Mambo and seeing how much the first half is specifically like pulling from it in terms of just, again, these like really kind of um, these uh, like long takes that are more about like living in these like emotional moments and like the fracture nature of time. Um, there are like weird sort of parallels where it's like um, probably my, my other favorite bit of the first act is the the scene where they're, in kind of like the empty restaurant where they're like overlooking the train and there's the snake there, but it's like this long take where they're like sitting at a booth for like maybe like six minutes. I, uh, and then like the train comes by and the water glass like slides off, uh, which is like, mm-hmm. to me, just like an absolutely like incredible scene just in terms of like setup and blocking. But like that one, they're like, uh, Lou, was like talking about like the significance of the turn of the millennium and all of this, like the, all this other stuff. Um, oh and man, then, that was the moment where I was like, all right, dude, we get it. You've seen millennium mambo. <laughs> uh, my, the, the, um, the big tip off to me is, uh, I don't know if any of you caught, we have a recurring nemesis on my appearances on this podcast because guess who fucking shows up in this movie? It's how, how's actor. What? How? Wait, I fucking, <laughs> He is uh, the he's the ex husband in the hotel. Oh my! He's the one with the dog. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, also, like, of course, he's an ex husband, right? <laughs> yeah, no. And so it's like it's it's funny because again, like this uh, when I wrote the Paris piece for Long Day's Journey tonight, I completely like not known that or not the one the one for Millennium Mambo where I bring up Long Day's Journey tonight. It like completely alighted me that there would be any like more concrete connection. But you know now, what? like. Natalie, your web connects them all. I think is what you mean to say. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really glad you brought it's... up the um the rattling of the of the excuse me the the cup that falls off the tray as they're as they're at the diner. It it like everything you were saying about the abstraction of the actual events of this movie and like rather than following plot beat to more of those abstracted concepts through the lens of Luo as a main character. That like is exactly what uh, I was I was getting toward um, when talking about how like seeing the second act makes you recontextualize what have happened in, a lot of what happened in the first act, um, and you take like these uh, broad understandings of how these how these slow cinema movies will like manipulate time through a certain type of narrative presentation, and then in the second half, obviously comments on that in a really meaningful way. We're we're lampshading the second half really really strongly here, so I think we're gonna get some good conversation points out of it, but that specific instance was one of the scenes that i was going to bring up in talking about one of my favorite things about that first act is that i say act the first half of the movie before the dream sequence uh, kicks in is whether it's in the present day or in these half recalled memories that Luo goes through there's always like there's this persistent i won't say consistent but this persistent idea of like the ending of things like you were saying with comparison to millennium mambo and uh, like how they just watch this cup fall off the table instead of doing anything about it like there's the constant thread of like mudslides are brought up several times as like the ending i believe the hairdresser's home is built on a a, a, i forget exactly what the interaction is but it's just before he gets to the cabaret club where he ends up sitting down and watching the movie and he's discussing with her about her how her house is going to wash away and she doesn't seem that particularly worried about it by by a mudslide and the mudslide stops their train um he keeps uh like there's this uh, uh uh like Oh yeah, there's like the, the the concept of like the closeness of the ending of things and of like the danger of 
of a concrete end is just sort of like hanging like a ghost over a lot of these scenes. There's obviously the whole waterlogged room that he keeps returning to is, I mean, the OSHA manager inside of me screams bloody murder at looking at like exposed dangling wiring and you shouldn't be swimming in that. He shouldn't, he shouldn't be anywhere near that. Like it's so bad. And it's so effective because it keeps the floor just out of frame, but you keep hearing the dripping and pouring of water and it gets worse every time he visits the room. I'm pretty sure he's going to die every time he walks in that room. You know, it's a, it's, it's a jump scare that never happens, but uh, like the, just the proximity of danger of endings of like a changing of, excuse me, a predictable uh, changing of, of circumstances just looms over so many of, of those scenes. There's the scene the first time I really like thought about this as a concept was when he meets his friend, I forget exactly what they are to each other, but he meets his friend who's going to help him track down some of Wan Shiwen's whereabouts. And he has like a, the, I think, I think it's a letter um, that he has like sitting at the table. And it's like one of those uh, 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 barbecue at your own table style restaurants. And the letter is just sitting next to open flame and the flame starts and nobody does anything about it for like four or five seconds. And you're pretty sure that something like is going to catalyze something's going to happen. Like there's going to be an end to this. Somebody scooches out of the way and delays that by just one more scene. You know, um, it's like, uh, th- there's a scene early on where somebody's cutting through metal with, with fire, but you don't see the whole thing fall off. There's, it's like somebody's performing some kind of manual labor, just like the very, nearness of a, of a final of an ending of a concrete thing happening just like is seeded through all of these scenes and uh, delayed and delayed and delayed and prolonged and prolonged and prolonged um and even that scene we were just talking about where the glass threatens to rattle off the table does not hit the ground before this scene hard cuts to something else happening right i think it's just a very pointed if not narrative intent at least like the emotion of the scene is then set up for like that to happen again in a couple of scenes to just keep prolonging this sense of any concrete act happening, any like finalized revolution of thought or like of, um, you know, another thing happening that will actually get him closer to or further from the truth is just prolonged and delayed constantly visually and conceptually through these scenes. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it does. And like, I just, I could not let that, that is what's going to define the beginning of the movie for me. Maybe, Maybe that's like how I'm avoiding some of that frustration is just like, Oh, never even one of these scenes is supposed to answer like a real question we have about the plot. It's never really supposed to get there. He's literally going to fall asleep like a widow baby bitch before any question gets answered. He's going to fall asleep and then it's not going to matter because it's going to be subconscious because he's going to choose to live in the dream. As we said, um, you know, that impermanence, uh, and you know, constant moving of those, of those things that we assume and want to be the most objective and unmoving, uh, is just like becomes material. Once you notice it, I, I just really loved how that for like, I'm in love equal parts with this, with the first and second half of this movie because of that uh, recurring concept. Uh, that was a long time for me to talk, though. I, I don't want to hog Mike anymore. Uh, I really loved how you described that. Uh, for the record, though, like I, I think about the first uh, half of this movie is like one fifty-nine minute inhale, right? And like every time you think that exhale is going yes. to happen, they start inhaling again instead. And I like I didn't even necessarily pick up on the the like visual motif of that the way you did. But now that you've described it, it feels like it really characterizes the first half sharply, right? It's like everything is always about to happen. The bubble is about to burst until the next scene starts, which is another memory in another time with another bubble that's about to burst. It never actually occurs, right? And I love the way you described it, Natalie, as it's this circling, right? Like that these motifs are constantly recurring. They're constantly on the verge of being sort of made explicit, but they are just out of grasp of you, much like they are for the main character, right? Like everything is just kept just enough at arm's length 
um, in the first half of this movie that you can't quite get your fingers around it, even though there is clearly something going on. There's clearly a, a meaning that you are trying to get a grip on. It's just too slippery to get your hands on. It makes the second half so impactful because it is visually, formally, symbolically, narratively, the exact opposite of the half that that recur that occurred before, right? And it, it creates this this incredible uh, tension that is so emotional for me and so human, and it it makes everything that happens in the second half of this movie so tinged with this like double sided deconstructive melancholy that I find really characterized the movie in a strong way for me. Um, I don't know what do you what do you think, Natalie? Yeah, I want to get to that in a second uh, before we like fully uh, take our foot off of the first uh, half of the movie. I did want to like go back to um, one very quick thing, which is that um, I do think uh, a lot of it, as we talked about, is uh, as as we kind of are talking about it and this kind of like the ways that you're like subjectively choosing to perceive things. I do want to talk about like the du- the dualism and like the the ways in which uh, figures other than Luo aren't appearing and specifically kind of uh, uh, Zuo, this character who is like kept off screen for like nearly an hour of the film. And we're, we're constantly just getting all of this like information about like why he's this like formidable feared person. Um, and the, the whole thing that um, Wan Chi Wen says uh, like right before his first like appearance on screen is uh oh yeah this one time he said to me like uh no matter where you run i will always like track you down Uh, again the millennium mambo uh parallel um also what's our main character doing right it's sort of (laughs) exactly exactly that's that's what i'm getting at where it's he is no like truly no different and also it is constantly called into attention that she is not giving him her actual name her actual age any like concrete biographical details and it's this again, this continual search for something that will never get an answer. And this, um, even as things kind of like increase and build up, it's you're he's still just kind of like pushing forward. And um, yeah, like, like we're talking about, like we don't see the glass break in that one scene. We don't see the, the way that that first half like concludes in the flashbacks. We never see the gun go off in the theater. Like that, it, like all of these things where it's, you're waiting for something to happen and like you are given the foregone conclusions of how certain things are happening, but you are like denied the finality of them. And you are like deliberately uh, left in this like perpetual state of inhaling, but like going into the second half, like even as you're saying, Harry, like um, the like linearity and the, the, the continuity of that sequence is such that like, it is this continual exhale in that we are made to like, be aware of the fact that like we are sitting in a theater watching this single shot play out and like feeling time pass and feeling kind of like, like being made aware of that. This is something that is happening in real time. And yet there is that like unspoken waiting to exhale of we're subconsciously waiting for a cut to happen. We're subconsciously thinking, Oh, but this is not like the language of the the previous section of the movie, or maybe it will be eventually, and we'll cut back to something like that, mm-hmm. or eventually we will return to something that is or, like a neat conclusion, and we're right. never given that; we're denied it completely. Or like Jason said, like this is going to end, right? You're almost yeah. you're wait you're still waiting for the gun to go off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it's 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 interesting too because um, one of the things that I've tended to notice is that like the way that. Uh, bygone trains you to almost kind of like 
think about and process time, even with like the longer takes in that first half, is such that um, the the long take in the second half is almost deceptive in some ways. In that, like both these recent times that I watched it, as we like near the end, and I know what's coming, I'm like, wait, that's been an hour already. Like this is like it feels like we are. It it, it feels like the sort of thing where he's the rhythms of the first half of the movie have like trained you so well that you almost don't realize how much time has passed or the, the like slowness and the, the way that it's like, let everything unfold is such that it feels like it's compounded a lot less into a lot more of a period of time. Um, I, I want to get into like folks, uh, like reactions and thoughts just like about the long take in general. But, um, Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting things that I've like kind of uh I, I've kind of like picked up on and um really kind of like hyper fixated on in like recent watches is the fact that even though we are seeing this like very clean, unbroken take and seeing it in such a way where you're made aware of the fact that like everything that you're seeing in front of you is uh like happening and unfolding for real just because that's the nature of how like the take was performed there are all these like strange little notes of just like subtle dream logic of things just being slightly off or unexplained or um like they they unfold the way that they do that would only make sense in a dream um like some some of the things are like you never see anybody lock the door of the pool hall and yet oh no they're locked in and now they have to find their way out or um they fly all the way down and then all of a sudden they're coming up from the entrance from the bottom rather than from the other end or um uh the like little uh hidden staircase from backstage only gets revealed when like uh kaijan the other the the dream version of the tongue character reveals it to luo it is like this as i try to map out the geometry of this set that is happening in the second act um it's it's the kind of thing where I feel like I have a good grasp on it. And then as soon as I try to piece that together, I'm like, I have no idea where that fits in. Yeah. I have no idea where that exists oh, in the man. geometry of this landscape. And it utilizes space so well because it's like, it's so Chinese in the sense that like everything's built on a mountain. So they also just have like four different like floors to work with. So like they're constantly walking up and down stairs and stuff. And, and so like that is so like disorienting, especially for a Midwestern boy like myself who is not used to <laughs> any sort of verticality whatsoever. Um, yeah, yeah. It like really makes such amazing use of both time and space in that, in that sequence. Yeah. yeah one last thing that I'll leave you with, and then I'll let uh, Jason jump in here uh, is that um, I feel like it, it's also like, again, deliberately playing with time in such an interesting way, because um, one of the things that uh, like really stands out to me is um, when uh, Kaijen picks up the firework, uh, like around the midpoint of the sequence and she's talking to like the the person who's selling it she's like oh how long will this go off for and he's like oh a minute uh when she, from the time that uh she and luo set it off to the end of the movie where it like closes on the shot of it about 10 minutes have passed and it's still burning and it's this this really fantastic like f- final shot of the movie in that or the, the final image that it rests on i should say uh in that it's like this image that it leaves you with in terms of like this broken eternity it it goes back to the broken watches that i like brought up there in the sense that like the dream state especially as like luo um my interpretation as like deciding to live in it is such that it's this like it's kind of this like perfect end state for him in that it's this place where 
he only gets to exist in these like idealized fashions and these uh, like this state of time frozen in perpetuity. Like it is, it is the sort of thing where he never has to leave it. He never has to embrace the reality. There never has to be like a finality to it. Yeah. It's like maybe, it's like maybe the best final shot of a movie ever. Right. Or like it's up there, man, did I like that shot? a lot? I mean, I, I was like, I can't believe that the movie's about to cut and it's about to be over. And then it was, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, if it hadn't ripped up its whole thing from inception, I would feel a lot more impressed by it. Honestly. That's a great uh, point, Jason. That's a great point. I, I was trying to make it before you could make it because I know you make with just an inch more sincerity than I would. Um, I am really glad we've gotten around to the ending piece because now we can talk about it all in context of the first half that came by. Uh, thank you for dealing with my fascistic iron fist idea to do that. Um, but like the second half for me is just so clearly characterized uh, as like, again, because all this sort of like milieu, this mix of like subjective memory and dream and what Luo would like us to believe was objective fact. Cause like, even he has these little, um, uh, ultimatums where he's like, I don't remember if, uh, in the first half, I don't remember if she gave me that book or if she just left it on the wall and I took it from there. But all I know is that I have it and that I know the story about this poem and stuff. It's like, do you really like how much of even that can we believe? And all of that, those questions are just like, again, sort of straightened out or forgotten and they don't become the point anymore after that midway point after like it is his subconscious has clearly in the text of the film it has taken over it is now uh his like a, 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 a an exploration of what that is of how those things are like mold in his mind and through like the collective consciousness of him and this person that he's created this version of Wan Shi one that he remembers it now exists in in like complete concert in this dream sequence but functionally i'm glad you brought up how like clean and how orchestrated it is because it is the first moment that i felt clarity about the movie like again i was willing to deal with some ambiguity in the first half of the movie and like i'm great like happy to soak in these vibes this is a beautiful movie and like i can piece together the pieces where i can and others i'll just forget or ignore second part there's nothing that you don't understand what's going on like yeah there are sections of the scenes there's different levels for them to fly between you know shared uh, locations in this whole set um but largely like you understand everything that's going you understand kind of relationships of people to people you understand the concept but it's just so absurdly ordered it's like i i read again that began chose specifically to film this movie to film that half in um in 3d and as a long take to give it this sense of like uh, objectivity of immediacy of of reality almost even though everything that's going on is surreal like a, some sort of karaoke performance of a small community up in, the, in a prison in the mountains um you know you could read all of the like uh subtextual and psychological you know uh, form that's going on there but like what's actually going on on screen seems to make sense like yeah she's gonna sing next to the karaoke competition but she also runs like a really strange arcade bar uh, pin bar excuse me um uh, uh what's that game called billiards club in in the mountains somewhere cool. just pool thank you billiards pool <laughs> his homeschool ass calling it billiards you fuckers no, uh, i mean billiards is fine but you gotta you gotta be able to get one or two you know what i mean thanks fine. <clears throat> uh but like the just the fact that it does go for that clarity despite like again we have agreed literally there was text i don't think it was in the version i rented online but there's text in the movie that says at this point please put on your 3d glasses because the character he doesn't they don't say this but like the character will do this you should do this too. And then it's very clear that he's asleep. And yet we have chosen that moment to make our break into a very like 
you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't have to miss anything that's going on here. Everything is going to happen in direct sequence. It's going to be absurdly ordered. And there's going to be this, just a surreality to what we're presenting here, but you will have complete visual clarity of everything that's going on. I find, I find that such an interesting choice because it's like, listen, we're going to control the chaos of the first act, but also we're going to introduce an element of chaos, which is like, you shouldn't believe that any of it is real. That's just such a fucking like baller ass move to do in your movie and make it look really cool and have like all these fun callbacks. I do want to cheesy as it is. I do at some point want to get to Natalie. We're talking about like ending explained type shit, like noticing the crying a lot for like noticing shit that that happened. Cause there are a few of those that I, that I caught on uh, to in from the first half that appear in the second half. I want to get there eventually, but there, I'm sure there's much, much more to discuss about even how this transitions and where we start and how we mirror a lot of these things um, that I want to hand over the mic to Harry to get in his thoughts about the uh, 59 dr- minute dream sequence take. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, like also I just can't get over, you called it uh, like a ballsy move. And I, I love that characterization of it because it's like every single time I've ever seen like, all right, folks put on your 3d glasses. It's been like fucking smell vision, like a John <laughs> Waters movie where it's like, oh, now you're going to smell the fart that comes through the like the screen at you or whatever and it's like just the idea that like he's utilizing this like what i think is fundamentally a pretty corny piece of technology to create this like unbelievably beautiful moving cathartic film experience is like so incredible um i would like to say that 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 catharsis that you're talking about this long exhale it also like perfectly aligns with what i think is like a really ironic conclusion that this character comes to, right? Like here we have this guy who is by all accounts, a pretty messed up, pretty shitty guy, right? Like he's Sam Spade. He's abusive to women. He's obsessed with finding this truth that only really matters to him. And he doesn't really care who he has to hurt when he gets in the way. And then we enter his dream sequence and he has such a tender relationship with all of the characters that we meet and wants so desperately for them all to see what's best right like from the very mm-hmm. beginning with with wildcat the kid who in my opinion is both sort of his aborted son and wildcat if we want to yeah, get into yeah. like the ending explain shit but like and like what does he do right like he he teaches him this new thing they have this relationship and he receives something that helps him navigate his world right it's sort of like like what if i had been there for wildcat at this different time in his life could i have changed things like this is what i want for him like i want him to have been I wanted him to have this mentor. Um, probably the most, I mean, the ending's the most moving part for me, but but coming in a really close second is the Sylvia Chang sequence, right? Which just fucking devastated me. Which is like, it's Wildcat's mom, but it's also very clearly a reconciliation with his own mother who abandoned him, and he is finding a way to forgive her and stand up for her, even to himself, right? To sort of justify her actions and why she left him. And he is like so... That was so fucking devastating to me, <laughs> especially when then... um uh, Kai Zwen, uh, the Tang Wei character in the dream sec- sequence also has red hair, right? And like very clearly looks like an aged down version of Wildcat's mom to further sort of conflate the two of them together. And what does he want for her, right? Like he, he helps bring her dream to life where like all she ever really wanted to be was a singer. She never really took the uh, initiative. And then at the end of the movie, when they go to kiss, she's one one away from going up and, and singing to bring about the grand finale of this singing festival, right? Where she will presumably maybe be noticed and finally get to live the kind of life she should have lived before she met maybe him slash the gangster that ended up controlling her life, right? So like in every case with every interaction, this this character is reconstructing this reality that gives these people a version of their lives, a version of self-determination that they never really got to have in his mind. But 
right? Like on top of all of that, we know that he's doing it for self-serving reasons, right? We know that he's doing it because like, that's also the version of himself that he wants to be the version of uh, life that he wants to have lived. And he is reconstructing events in such a way that he can make that happen for himself and for other people. And like, man, just like on a, on a personal level that resonated with me so strong, right? Because it's like, I like, I want to believe the best about the people that I know and the people that I love. Right. And like, I like want to, I have like complicated memories and feelings about my childhood and my upbringing and my mom. And like, I want to like reconcile them into this version of who I am in this version of my life that makes sense to me. And that allows me to believe certain things about the people that I love. Right. And like, the notion that like this movie is like, yes, you can do that. It's all true. Like you can make that happen, but remember how that might be something you're doing for yourself. Right. Remember how that might be something that fundamentally you need. And what does that mean about what you're doing to the people in your life? Is like it, I left so devastated. And so sort of like, it was weird, right? Because I was devastated and I was also sort of like, um, resolved, right? I like, I feel like this movie is, not necessarily indicting the main character so much as it's just explaining him in a, in a way that, that like felt very um, deeply sort of cathartic and in moving to me um, personally. Uh, And I don't, I don't know how you guys felt about it. Maybe you think that this guy is, is more indictable than I do. uh, Lo Hong Wu. Um, But uh, I just, I was so moved by like this movie's ultimate stance on like what it means to um, reconstruct an identity for yourself out of what you've been through. Yeah, I, I fully a hundred percent like Harry, like everything that you're saying is very much s- something in like some capacity that I've like thought about with this before I lose the thread here, I'll dig more into that. But um, I want to like, just quickly go back to the pin of uh, the, the whole thread of like the entire sequence is building up to when uh, Kaizen is about to take the stage for uh, this like, karaoke night that they're having like down in the village and like but you never see it happen and then like what happens as soon as you cut to credits is that fucking lullaby comes back in again and it's like almost the like that that is the like foregone conclusion if things were to continue but also like um i we we haven't talked about this at all but the very first shot of the movie is the karaoke bar that he visits in uh dongmei the city that he goes into when he falls asleep and it's uh it's one who you're not seeing picking up the microphone and this kind of like the camera rises as almost as if it is in that dream sequence again. And so it's this perpetual sort of like dream state of Ooh. him thinking about this, like helping, helping somebody else achieve what they want. But it's all, again, it's like that. That's the thing that like always sticks out to me about this, like ending sequence is that it is like such a perfect, like loop closing for like, all of these different threads in Luo's life. And it's this, this way in which he is able to uh, kind of envision for himself, like the ideal way in which things play out. He's, he's has uh, this son figure who's also representative of this uh, close friend in his life who he failed and he helps him through it. He basically becomes this like very close paternal figure to him and uh, has this like continuing bond. Um, He, builds this like relationship with this woman that is actually like has this complete through line to it and has this uh there is you're seeing more than just like the beats as we saw them play out in his memories and has this like consummated romance in this way um he's uh 
helping the mother of the the friend he fails and also his own it's all of these things are these ways in which he is reconciling with and also trying to make sense of his failures and trying to almost kind of within his own perspective um come to this place of being like oh if i only had like the right circumstances or if i had only done the right thing if it's only this i kind had of, been there in some way right yeah it's in, in its own way it's almost this kind of like detachment of things because he's not choosing to acknowledge like his own personal failings he's like choosing the way that the dream state is interpreting it is oh if i had just done this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing like if i if i had the ability to do all of these things then things would work out even within the like even though the the like unspoken thing is that these are only possible in this idealized state of himself that exists in the dream world and only within the logic that the dream world can exist in and only without all of these like other factors personal or otherwise or external like coming into play it's this very kind of like self-contained loop of all of these things the way that he plays over these sequences in his head and i think that that to me is kind of um that to me is kind of like the real true like power in it in the sense that like kind of what harry is saying is like regardless of like how you connect or feel ostracized or alienated by like uh luo's characterization of the first half which i feel like you are intentionally meant to you're kind of meant to see through the like abstracted way in which bygone like constructs the film these little ripples of yourself and your own psychology whether or not you share in that behavior in the sense that like yes we all as like people have these very sort of like idealized ways in which we choose to remember things in which we choose to dwell on things and think of things as like a oh i wish this could have turned out this way if only i had the ability to do this thing or even just in us on a subconscious level like kind of like how things manifest in the dream is there are these things that he can't shake these like pieces that are clinging onto his psyche and the way that his subconscious is choosing to like bring these images back into a dream state is this way of being like, there are these things that remind me of my present self and my waking state. And here they come about in this like completely recontextualized form. This is how my subconscious is choosing to reconstruct it. And it's, it's the dream state is trying to make sense of that, which he has either chosen to cast away or can't be made sense of because it is just there's too much bearing down on it in reality and i think that that's kind of like what harry is getting at is the like moving portion of it is this there is that like to me that kind of like emotional recognition in the sense of like those those like connections and those like um memories that you have thought of as like i wish i was able to repair this like close thing from this like person who drifted out of my life or who like has like been estranged and the 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 sequence with like wildcats mothers are talking about is like the the portion of the movie that i think really truly like gets to me as well in the sense that he in the moment there isn't really particularly a given explanation for how he is acting the way he's acting or why he's choosing to act this way toward who is in the dream a total stranger other than the fact that it's this figure who just in his own mind resembles these people that he's felt like he's failed or who has felt like he's grown distant from and mourns their his, his connection to and it's this place where even if he can't explain it even in the confines of the dream it's this way for him to build and like 
reach a sort of like closure with all of these things that he doesn't have closure with in reality. Yeah. Closure was the big word for me as well, but like what's so perfect about it and and what you described in lost in the dream as well, Natalie, is that it's, it's pointed on both ends, right? It's so easy and welcome to perfectly deconstruct this. And that's what's so um, scary and pointed about it, right? Is that like in all of these situations where he's forgiving these people who have wronged him or he is correcting these people's lives in his own head so that they can be the people he loves, right? So that he can forgive um, uh, Tang Wei's character uh, so that he can forgive his mother, so that he can forgive himself. He's still present in all of those. He's the dictator, right? Who is defining how these things are going. He is present in all of these stories. He, they, they are still his story to tell. Um, and therefore, like, that's the sort of the, the tyranny, right? Like, it's possible to interpret this dream sequence as something that's so beautiful and, um, and pure, right? As something that like, oh, this is him forgiving the people in his lives so that he can sort of like uh, get closure so he can still love them so he can move forward. Um, or you can explain it as like, oh, this is this is the man completely being stuck in his own interpretation of how things should have gone, would have gone. And uh, he is like tyrannizing these people's lives in his own mind so that he can emerge with an idea of himself as this hero to take forward with him. And both of those things can be perfectly true within the auspices of this movie, right? And that's what's so like compelling and frightening to me about it, right? Because it's sort of like saying, you kind of do that too, viewer. In the life that you have created for yourself, that is something that you are doing even now. And it's like, fuck, you're right. And like, yeah, what do yeah. I what do I do with that? What can I do with that? Yeah, that's that's to me kind of the the power of this film, I think, and and like what has kind of like emerged for me the more I've watched it is that it does all of this without ever like explicitly implicating the viewer. Like there's no point in which like anyone is like, yes, this is what all people do. It is very pointedly like through the lens of this one character, but it's, it becomes this thing where it's, um, it is so like pointedly about our own psychologies and our own kind of, there's enough in the film that is so concretely about this particular person's uh, way of interpreting things, but because it is so abstracted and broad and there's like so much on the, like beneath the tip of the iceberg here that is being shown to the viewers is that it is so easy to, to imprint on it. And then to have that, like create this recursive loop where you are kind of like made to think, how does this like apply to me? How does this like relate to like, what what is, how do I see and recognize the the psychology in these things? And how is it making, how is the way that I am living in this own particular like iteration of this dream, something that like recalls the way that like I filter my own memories and experiences um, in, in ways that have those like, that you are like calling attention to it in like, how, how are these like, possibly like self-serving in my own way or how mm-hmm. is this um how how do the dreams and memories that i have how are they like selectively taken how are they kind of like how do they filter through my own like worldview and way of seeing things mm-hmm. um and I, I think that that's kind of like the real kind of like complicated um force in that um to the point where like the very last thing that we like see in the movie before we get that like uh, like closing image, like the very last time we see like anybody on screen is it's um, Luo gets to like have this like 
very like picture perfect like movie romance like ending kiss with uh kaijen while this spell happens the house spins the like fabled romance in this book that has been like teased out all movie comes to life but it's something that comes about where he is in the in the length of the dream nothing has been done about all these things that we've seen before in in terms of like there has been nothing done about like interrogating all of the like personality traits that he's brought into the reality it is essentially this like alternate fabricated version Mm. of himself that exists in the in the fabric of the dream Mm -hmm. to the point where it's um it doesn't even matter in the space of the dream that the house that they're in is like completely dried out stripped bare like it is this thing that is so transparently in the in the diegesis of the dream sequence like a completely like drained of all its life love uh in to the point where it like not that it was there in the first place because it is the flooded house that we're we're talking about where it is already kind of in a state of disrepair but it's even more so like in a different state but it's this thing that he's choosing to the way that he's choosing to like focus on it is this kind of like idealized state of this is uh the way that i am able to like save and construct and live in this like perfect eternity even if all the signs around there are telling me that i have done nothing i have not done it like this is something that can, can't be salvaged at this point right well i mean you just look at the way that he is he has a recast tang Wei literally as kaizen right where like she instead of green she is characterized by red which is also the the color that characterizes his mother and wildcat's mother and she is this much more like down to earth much more real much more understandable comprehensible character she's also a damsel in distress that he essentially gets to save right so like in the quote-unquote reality of the first half um uh one uh kai wen um like gets him to kill her boyfriend and then disappears forever right and he's chasing this idea of her for the rest of his life in his head she is somebody who needed saving and then he saved her and then they got together and were happy right and and it's like such a perfect and in doing that he is able to forgive his mother and he is able to forgive himself and you're right right like it's so at at no point um within the dream sequence are both sides of the deconstructive truth not totally clear and possible where it's like oh i understand exactly what he's doing i understand exactly what he's idealizing and what he needs to do and i understand that the movie is is telling me that this is an idealization right is something that is falling apart and it all comes to a head in this like perfect point uh with the sparkler on the uh on the desk right where it's like oh like there it is right it's like both of these things are true but but for how long right or like what does it mean that they're both true yeah, like I think it's to the to Natalie's point about like the the it, the movie recognizes the habit of humans generally the viewer of the character to like have that desire to have a version to to be able to control a version of themselves that actually can like fulfill those uh like to rectify those failures so to speak like um I think it's telling that he saves not one but two damsels in distress in that uh dream sequence he, like as soon as he gets there um i guess more symbolically than literally but as soon as he gets to that arcade place kaijen uh gets the lottery that's supposed to t- give her like a million dollars or whatever i forget the exact terms of that but basically it gives her the life pomelo fruit the pomelo fruit like a life-changing amount of money comes into her life as soon as he arrives boom and then like you know he gets to play her 
savior by helping a house spin it, you know, on a more conceptual metaphorical level. Uh, but also like with the character that was wildcat's mom in real life, um, he like, uh, scares off her intimidator. Uh, he gives her power back by like forcing him to give her the keys, all that kind of stuff. Like there, there's at least two instances of that. I think it's the weight of his, I won't say trauma, but of his own, uh, uh, problems his is his, his issues in life his like personal failures that he's attributed to something in him that he sees in life are be, are like given equal weight in the dream uh, uh Y Jin is present for most of it um she is uh like again she's both by proxy well i, I mean and i'm forgetting a third time like when the teenagers are sort of busting her chops about like you already have a boyfriend you know kind of thing and he abuses two teenagers and threatens to kill one of them uh he like physically clamps down on a, on a kid like he gets to do that and like he's not directly rewarded for it but it is like it is considered now he's i don't know it's it's part of it's part of the dream part of his own little like version of uh gratification of uh of, of reward i guess i i was trying to avoid using the word because like nobody comes up to him and gives him a smack on the cheek or whatever but like he is given uh, it, advanced station. He's he is like enabled somehow through that. He is he flies away uh, because like he knows what to, I, I don't know. There's just like a, a great feeling for me that like from the beginning, from the first half of the movie, the sort of uh, uh, issues that he uh, ascribes himself, the sort of guilt that he has about m many aspects of his life that are hinted at or more explicitly fleshed out are given like they have their sort of like. Uh, other hands, so to speak, that are mirror image in the in the dream sequence, and some of them are uh, are are more liberally applied and uh, and more thoroughly resolved than others, but they all kind of make an appearance. Yeah, um, one thing that uh, I want to mention is that um, as we're talking about kind of like all of these like ways in which the dream is this like repair state for him, but also there's. He, he still gets to do all of these things that are like emblematic of his personality and his waking state is um, even though we see the continuity of this entire like sequence play out in full um, something that like feels like very pointed to me is that there's no real moment in which like he like romances Kaijen. There's this, this whole thing of like her having this like kind of like I'm reluctantly like putting up with you and I'm like helping you get what I want or what you get what you want because maybe that'll help me get what I want in, in most of it. And like, even when they get down to the village, as soon as she gets down there with him, she like makes the first effort to like break free of him. And then it's the entire sequence with uh, Sylvia Chang. And then once he comes back, he gives her a like faulty gift. And then all of a sudden it feels like everything flipped. It's like, mm -hmm. he's unable to imagine a like romantic scenario for himself that actually involves uh, anything resembling a kind of like healthy romance he's in in his mind he's like clearly if i just did the the same thing that uh got me into the state with wan shi wen it will work out completely fine um which i think is like really significant um i think uh i i have two more notes about the sequence and then i think uh i may have tapped out pretty much most of what i've said i do want to single out um because we've we've kind of danced around it but um Sylvia Chang in the sequence and also I would say like in the the first half of the film when she makes her first appearance is like uh like up there in terms of like some of the most like moving performances in this film like with such a short amount of screen time too in the sense that um especially in the like second half like we're given this like kind of really brief like flicker of this character who is like 
running from something has her own entire like her her own kind of like baggage that she is trying to escape and she's like infusing it with like all of this pathos and this this really like heavy weight to it in a way that i think is like really phenomenal um and i also want to sing a lot because we somehow made it an hour and a half in without even talking about it at all uh i gotta i gotta shout out the apples the the apple eating sequences um which to me i think is um every single time i've seen this movie kind of um specifically the bit in the long take where luo eats the apple in full is like the the moment in the long take where i think like the full like emotional weight of it like comes like crashing down at me just in the sense that um kind of the way i interpret it is um he's carrying with him this like profound sadness at like reckoning with all of these things that are almost impossible for him to confront in his like waking state and um the the thing that i kind of take away from it is this this thing that we're kind of like we've been like coming back to time and time again in that like i think the uh unspoken thing behind the sadness in this state is he is so kind of he's so devastated by what the confrontation represents and what all of these uh these ways of like in his mind closing these loops are that to him it becomes this thing where because we never see him wake up like that is the turning point wherein the dream becomes more palatable to him than reality it becomes this thing where he is so overwhelmed by the sense of like getting this finality within the dream that he almost doesn't want to return into a present state where he's just kind of chasing after these things that are unfulfilled, unanswered, left completely like unclosed. Um, And it's that, that kind of, to me explains kind of what happens in that like final stretch where they go down to the house and have this kiss. And that is the last you see of him is that is like, the place wherein he's recognizing the pattern of the dream and choosing to actively pursue it even further. Mm-hmm. Well, that like ties directly to, I'll consider the whole ending explained thing open at this point, because it ties directly to what I was uh, like. One of my things from the dream sequences, um, the eating of the apple in the first half, uh, he calls back to a story. His mom used to tell him about how, if somebody was sad, very sad, they'd eat the whole apple core and all. And it's like a three minute shot of young uh, I believe long young Luo just eating is it, maybe um, eating the entire apple coronal, like a real sociopath who does that coronal, but I guess he's depressed. Enough. Traumatized people, Jason. Oh, those people, those kinds of people. I ate an um, entire apple once at like a nature camp. Cause they were doing like a, don't leave any waste behind eat the, you can eat the entire apple. You know that, right? I was like, okay. I was like, this isn't a good Aren't idea. Aren't the seeds supposed that. to be poisonous? I thought nah, I was always to told so many. a million of them. Sure. That's yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. But, but for real gross. Um, anyway, but he, he, and that, that sequence of him, like recounting that from the first half follows immediately the sequence where he talks about, and it's intimated that it's like his own internalization of his mother's affair with other women or with other men is he t- says, tells a story about how there used to be a beekeeper next door. Uh, and how like she'd sometimes sneak honey back for them. I mean, this is a few threads to try and connect, but in the dream sequence, he, uh, uh, Sylvia Chang, um, as the hairdresser, it grabs a smoky and she, he says like, if you want to disperse bees in the original story, he says, if you want to disperse bees, my mom said, grab a smoky torch. This woman grabs a smoky torch, walks all the way down to this gate where she confronts the man that, uh, she is having marital troubles with. She, uh, I don't know if you're allowed to say that word, Harry. Uh, 
Oh no, sorry. That was Natalie. My fault. I I thought it was I, for a moment I was trying to get Classic I'm always trying to keep Harry out. Thing trying to keep trying to keep Harry out for for for, you, for <laughs> using thing uh, that obviously shouldn't be done. You know, I I, I will mean, say Harry's that podcast. Harry's done it before. I, I will say that wait, when have I said that, Jason? Oh no, you, you you've, refer- evidence, you've referenced dick. the chat. <laughs> Almost. Oh, oh, okay. I was, I was like, uh, okay. But I, I was going to say when you said she was having relationships with other women, I was like, wait, stop. Whoa, we have whoa, to talk whoa, about whoa, this whoa. for another hour. Whoa. I did not get that part. Dream I sequence. need to know. Uh, no, it, it, it I, I misspoke. Okay. Order of operations here in the origin, in the first half of the story, Luol recounts a story in which his mother used to go to the beekeeper neighbor, get honey, snake it away. And then he recounts as a spinoff of that. That, you know, if you ever want to disperse bees, if you want to get rid of them, smoky torch. Boom. Immediately from there, he remembers, also my mother used to tell me that pe- people who were really sad ate an entire apple. Boop. One hour later in the movie, we're in the dream sequence. He follows Sylvia Chang with a smoky torch in her hand down to the man that she's trying to like shoo away from her life, that she's trying to get something more from, that she's trying to like rectify things with in, you know, a belligerent manner. And they're staring at each other through. Boom, ending explained. Honeycomb-shaped gates? Yeah. Fucking, fucking God, and like sw- swipe, uh, swiping these it, fucking... Dude. Yeah, we, also, yeah. Oh, I was gonna say, it also is a, uh, to me, a deliberate callback to the prison sequence yes, where yes. they're talking through the grate that is similarly hexagonal. Exactly. Like, it, there's, there's a great synchronicity there, a great symmetry there, and from that scene directly, again, right after the whole honeybees how to keep, uh, you know, uh, stinging bees away thing into the sad people eat apples directly kick flip from that scene into him eating an apple as he walks up the stairs, core and all. Like, I know that this is the most basic, like, oh, does anyone else notice kind of shit? But like, it really did just sing in that moment. I was watching this movie alone with headsets on because Sky had some friends down downstairs and they're like, I'm just fully tuned into this movie and it just fucking hit so hard in the moment like that i cannot stress enough that those things if you stick with it and if you like i'm not going to say like closely pay attention but if you're not like like i tend to do on your phone (laughs) for parts of a movie this is not the movie to do that with because it will just like add so much more heft and weight and depth to what the payoff is later on um that you know oh yeah thematically he is connecting these things uh, and and like the logic of a dream is allowing him to rectify these things, to fix these things, to scare off a man that he did not know as a child to tr- to want to scare off, um, and yet now he gets to with with guns and and smoky torches and stuff. Uh, that is my way of opening up the whole ending explained shit. I imagine Natalie, you've seen this movie at least six eight times. I imagine there are a couple of those things where you see it in the first half of the movie and then you see it represented somehow in the in the second half in the dream sequence. Uh, were there any more of those, the the whole um, crying a lot 49 type thing that Ari was bringing up earlier? Uh, I feel like I've already kind of like mostly brought up a bunch Real of them. Clean, yeah. um, I, I, <laughs> I think, I think um, I would say like, obviously like the, uh, the, the bits that we were talking about with like young wildcat were in uh, the, this uh, son that uh, he never got to have with uh, Wan Shi Wen who like, uh, he was like, oh, I would have teached him. I, I would have taught him to play ping pong, uh, and that's that, that's just like one of the like clearest things where it's like, what does he do in the dream? Oh, yeah. there's this like young child who plays ping pong, and he's teaching him like this special spin serve move. We we got a shout out like young wildcat too, who's also just like um, 
like one of the best parts of the and like such a great way to kick oh, off it's so good like just this like small teenager like just talking back to him the whole time um but yeah i i think um for me i think we've we've kind of covered most of it i think uh of also like uh pretty like to me uh interesting significance is the fact that um let me see here two two things I'll, I'll throw out there is that like very early in the dream sequence the photograph that he's like carrying around he chooses to discard it by throwing it into the fire and that's like that's interesting to me because like the photograph itself we haven't even gotten into that but like that carries such an interesting like loaded weight because it's this photograph that uh is like kind of implicitly stated is like one of his mother that he's carrying around with him all over but it also like when we first see it when he pulls it out of the broken clock again like broken time it it, it's it all like it goes it all the way down um it's also like like, it's it's the most startling thing that that character could possibly do in that moment right it's like wait this stands in like such direct contradiction of everything we know about this guy yes but uh like when he pulls it out of the the clock at the like beginning of the movie it's it's got a burned out face and so like the first few times I had uh, seen this movie, I taken it to be, oh, that's a photograph of Wan Shi Wen. And he's like, essentially like his memory is filling in the blanks, but it's again, that like not a thing of like woman he is pursuing equals m- absent mother figure. Um, and in the, in the dream, him like casting it aside is this uh, it, it that, that to me, the significance is like definitely a little like shaky in the sense that like, it seems like the point in which like he will let things go. And then the rest of the dream sequence is him just continually being like, nah, I'm just going to pursue that again. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm just going to like go for it even further. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. It's like, there's a conflict that we don't even necessarily see happening. And then finally, when he eats the apple, like you suggested, that's when he finally fully embraces like, okay, I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, And like, obviously like, as we brought up, like the, the pomelo fruit is the, that being like this, this kind of like um, almost this kind of uh, I shouldn't say it's like a um, whatever the fucking term is. I'm I'm like totally blanking on my like Hitchcockian verbiage, uh, but um, but like that being like this like sought after object by both of the Tongwei characters, and in in the dream, uh, it being this thing that like is one, and that's this kind of thing where even with like all the different like disconnects and like personality differences like that's still the thing that like pushes her into like pursuing this thing with him like to completion rather than just using it for her own desires as in the like reality and fragmented memories where she gets it she eats it in the movie theater and then she has him do what she wants and then leaves abruptly um oh my god what was the other thing i was like thinking about um were you were you going to talk about how the last 59 minutes of this movie is just a silent hill game because no because like tell me more i think for, we're not we're not in the drunk drawer yet there Jason. We're, we're not quite <laughs> in the drunk drawer yet i was trying to make that a smooth transition to it because who boy um i'm 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 happy to go there if uh if if harry did you have any uh did anyone else notice type shit from second uh for second no half. i i think that i think that we've about covered it i think that like again the the important thing there right is that there is there are these recurring associations from the first half to the second that like make it very clear that he is drawing mm-hmm. these narratives uh natalie would you uh be ready if for us to open up the junk drawer do you have any thoughts that didn't get out in the first part of this discussion because i can i think i'm ready 
That's the junk drawer then, Bebe. I'll let you start uh, with any thoughts off the top of your head that uh, weren't part of a larger conversation earlier on. Yeah, uh, I didn't mention it because it felt weird to bring up what we were talking about, like just the emotional power of it. But like, I, I would like everybody to know that like, since I had first seen this movie in 2019, the image of Sylvia Chag playing DDR has never left my brain and will never leave my brain. <laughs> and it is one of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, like character introduction into a movie is you have this uh, legendary, uh, prolific actor of uh, the Chinese Taiwanese screen and you're introducing her by playing um ddr in this uh empty hairdressing parlor in, which is uh, i think like listlessly too like she's not even like yes. super getting oh, into it she's so just kind of like yeah. leaning and wobbling and her feet aren't following it's great uh yes uh and like I, that's that's the other thing is between that and one of the karaoke songs i love how much euro dances in this movie <laughs> uh is like really fun uh that's actually this is a great segue into um one of uh my favorite pieces of like ephemera trivia is um in the uh booklet for this movie that uh is available through kina lorber uh there is uh an interview with bygone uh and i would like to read you uh two passages uh very quickly all right Um, here we go Uh, i'm pulling this up from like a screen grab uh he's talking about um how part of the long takes in uh the first half of the movie especially are because um he falls asleep on set uh and just leaves the camera rolling um so i sleep all the time on set especially for these long shots that can last seven or eight minutes i'll doze off and i'll wake back up again and yell cut so the actors don't know the 3d section i couldn't so i slept a lot during the 2d section i had to change the script a lot was as we were shooting so i never got enough sleep (laughs) on average i would do maybe 50 takes for one of those shots during those takes i would have a lot more chances to take a nap i know a lot of directors don't get enough sleep but my filmmaking means i get a lot of sleep uh which i can follow it up with uh let me find this other. i love where he's like during these long shots seven or eight minutes <laughs> uh interviewer asks uh did you have to teach sylvia chang how to play dance as revolution Yes, and it was very tiring for her but i had to shoot a lot so she was so tired by the end of that sequence so you did about 50 takes of Dance Dance Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> that was the hardest part of the entire 59-minute shot was teaching Sylvia Chang to play DDR. <laughs> which, like, why does she even need to know how to play DDR? Like, <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, man. Um, I, I do want to... I, I do remember the one bit about the ending sequence that I think is especially, like, cool and powerful, which is that... Um, uh, I don't know if the village that we see in the dream sequence is supposed to be the one that uh, he falls asleep in and is supposed to be at the karaoke bar, especially because in the dream sequence, the karaoke bar is fully inside and this is like a fully like outside like festival type thing. But it feels very pointed to me that like in the kind of like slippery nature of time, like when we see uh, Dong Mei, which I think is the like village that he's in in the waking state, it's very like run down, decrepit. It looks like uh similar to the flooded house i was saying this to cody when we uh ended up at the same screening but it feels very like tarkovsky in a way of just like these like decaying like uh like like remnants shelled out remnants of like these kinds of like uh these facades and these uh Mm -hmm. domiciles um and then like when we see it in the dream sequence it's this like very vibrant very active like yeah very like well kept and put together place aside from like the burned out house um yeah and so like i feel like that kind of again it's this in the the idealization but also the 
again, the the nature of time being this thing that kind of can't really be grasped in terms of like how much is drawing from past, how much is drawing from the future. Yeah, um, that's that makes me think of the and this is this qualifies to me as a junk drawer thought, but it makes me think of in the first half. There's this shot. He's talking. I forget exactly what he's saying. He's talking about basically the decay of memory, the uh, you know unreliability of it, etc. And it just kind of holds on just rusted metal, like a bridge or something like that. And then paints peeling, and it looks real shitty. Like I don't know that they even had a set decorator to do this. It just looks like an authentically shitty piece of old metal, and it just lingers there for a little while. And it's you know if if you needed that, uh, it really does drive home the the concept of like oh the sort of like stability but uh slow decay and unreliability of memory of of like the way that this story is about to be told because it's pretty early on that that shot happens and it just foregrounded a whole lot of what it came in that first act to me and contrasting it against like a neon of the second half and of like the very integrated with nature because it's in the middle of a hillside in a an abandoned prison area of of the second half of the of the dream sequence is like a really interesting contrast to show. Right. And I, I don't know, this is kind of a junk drawer thought, but like, to me that like, this is sort of dumb, dumb brain, right? Like I have a lot of good reasons why I can't wait to rewatch this movie, but like on a whole nother level, like I know that next time I see this movie, I'm going to find so many more associations between the first and the second half of the movie. And I'm going to like draw so many new conclusions about what those mean. And like, because of how complicated this movie's relationship to, the truth and the reconstruction of the main character's life as it is. Like, I think that those, uh, like new revelations I have might actually change my relationship with this movie. Right. Like I, I fell where I did this time around where like, I thought that like, Oh, the, the deconstructive and the cathartic readings are both sort of equally valid. And like, they're making this commentary about what masculinity is and, and what, a uh, like it means to reconstruct a, a life around yourself. And it like, it could go either way. And like, what does it mean that it could go either way? But like, I can't wait to watch this again. So I can be like, Oh, but like, the significance of X, Y, Z means that actually like there's this new element, right? Like I bet I can evaluate and reevaluate this movie forever. And like, that's so exciting to me. Yeah. That's the thing that um, I've been uh, coming back to more and more. And that, that was like one of the most like rewarding things about seeing it this week for the fourth and fifth time, but seeing it in rapid succession, I thought that it would be the sort of thing where it would be like, Oh, maybe like at a certain stage, like, I would feel like I have everything there is and maybe like a watch would like diminish the mystique of it. But it was kind of almost the opposite effect where um, the when I watched it the fifth time after I had just watched it the previous night, it was the sort of thing where, again, I was picking up a lot of extra details in terms of not just the connections between those halves, but kind of like the almost like intentional rhyming and like rhythms and repetitions and like uh the the internal cohesion of the first half specifically Mm -hmm. that's not entirely clear like on a first viewing because when you've kind of like are going into it you're more thinking about like how it primes you for the second half and how it's going to instruct you on what it is that you are about to see and then when the second half hits you're thinking about oh this is how the first half has like primed me for everything that i'm seeing and making sense of like this particular um this particular like step-by-step basis of like events as they're happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly the kind of thing that um, I think just kind of like balloons and grows the kind of longer I spend with mm-hmm. it, just because there, there is so little that is like spoken and said in the text of the film. And it leaves so much of it like 
to be imprinted on your own interpretation and your own psyche. And there is, in a lot of ways, it is kind of this like really deceptive mirror in the sense that it is like holding up this one version or this one like uh, progression of events and story beats. But um, as it happens, it's all about like the ways in which you interpret it and the ways in which you make sense of kind of why these images are placed in the order they are, why the construction of them uh, and like what we are, what we are let in to see is happening the way it is. Um, Right. And I think that's really powerful. We end up doing the same thing the main character is doing. Exactly. It's crazy. Like it exactly. Right. And like in the process, it allows you to reinterpret and, and like, uh, reperceive the way you've been living your life up to this point too. It's really like a, in that way, like a literally life changing movie in some ways, right? And like that's yeah. a crazy thing to say. No, it's it's the kind of thing where um the way that I have been talking about this with um some folks as I was trying to explain kind of like how I felt about this movie the way I have is the sort of thing where this is like the most recent movie I can think of where this applies, but it's like the kind of thing where when I had like first seen it in 2019 and when like I've seen it every subsequent time, um, it's the kind of thing that like really kind of reinvigorates uh, in me a sense of like what kind of modes of storytelling and like accomplishments just on a filmic level are still like possible to be like, be drawn out of the medium and like what, what it is still, what there still is to say, Mm -hmm. what there still is on a like technical and visual level to accomplish and how that can even further kind of like get into like new territory of the kinds of stories that, and uh, the, the kinds of ways that films can make you feel. And like, this is the sort of thing where as I've kind of come back to it, it's still so singular and so powerful, but it to me embodies all of these new possibilities that are still being uncovered within the medium of film and how mm-hmm. again like this is a film that um feels very indebted to a lot of like uh frameworks and like classical ways of storytelling beats as we've been talking about but it feels like the kind of thing where um the technological way in which it was accomplished is something that could have only happened at like this given point in time and come about at this particular like time and space and manifested in this way at like the point that it did. Yeah. And I think that that to me is like, that is especially exciting yeah, in the sense wow. that like, yeah. Yeah. It's, just it's, like it's, it's represents an actual continuity of art, right? Like an actual mm. next step towards like building something new, which is amazing, especially when you consider how much like not to be cynical, but like how much commercial filmmaking is like endlessly about regurgitating the past. It's like this is about using the past to make something that's totally new and how radical that is. Mm. It's kind of wild to think that from that lens that this movie hadn't like a movie exactly like this movie hadn't already been made because you can see like like we say indebted obviously to previous films and another generation of filmmaking, but very much like if you hadn't told me that this movie was made in 2018, I would have assumed this is like a foundational piece of cinema for the things I've already seen, because it is like, as I said, somewhat more approachable. It is like, uh, I won't call it a piece of like pop art. It's still like pretty firmly, I think like art house E, but largely like it, it feels like the pieces that are here are like, would are things that people would expound upon rather than the product of, you know, other ideas that have already had. It's, it's so wild. Specifically, the fact that 2046 came out after, or before this movie 
and not after it blows my mind because I'm like, yeah. oh, Long Car Why definitely watched this movie a million times and was like, what if I made a sequel to In the Mood for Love that was Long Day's Journey into Night? It's it's crazy. Um, it's also crazy that again, this is a Silent Hill game uh, at the one hour and eleven minute mark. Um, true, like truly, truly, I can't find any indication that Begun is a video game player, but like at uh, funny you should say that. Uh, go to my Twitter header. Is the is the gentleman uh? That is bygone saying, yes, I'm an avid gamer. <laughs> Let's fucking go. Okay. Wow, okay, so Natalie I only did the research for you. <laughs> I am absolutely vindicated that this is 300% a video game ending. Uh, that maybe Luo himself played games and that played into this whole ending. Pe- but like, Yeah, he, he, got, he got the in-water ending of Silent Hill 2 and I, he was like, I gotta I, make a movie about okay, that shit. Okay, pr- uh, for, uh, frequent, well, not frequent. Former uh, past guest, uh, Blake Hester, uh, has a podcast called Something Rotten that he makes with Jacob Geller. You should listen to it. They play video games. And one of the big games that they played was Silent Hill 2. Uh, sometime after that they aired their, those episodes, I decided to play Silent Hill for the, 2 for the first time in my life uh, this past Halloween season. Fantastic video game. You know, alters your perception of how people use the medium, et cetera, et cetera. It deserves all the praise it gets. Uh, maybe it's just because it's freshly in my mind, but going down to a mine shaft where your aborted son uh, lives to compete against you in sports and where I think it's intimated that uh, Luo dumped Joe's body after murdering him in the, um, in a theater was in like an abandoned mine. I think, I think is the implication or maybe wildcat as well. Maybe all of these people. So a source of guilt and trauma is where you find like your next of kin fucked up silent hill. To he takes a fucking zip line <laughs> to where he's supposed to go next, which is a an abandoned prison with a bunch of waist high cover and teens to beat up Silent Hill. And uh, the he's even like throughout the whole thing, he's wearing the whole uh, Alan Wake alone in the dark ass hoodie underneath a jacket thing like the most 2007 video game NPC or excuse me protagonist I can imagine is exactly what you're watching the back of this entire time. It's even shot from like a third person, like over the shoulder perspective for good, good chunks of the sequence. It's so the, fucking good. The bit where he's following Sylvia Chang down the hill every single time I've watched it, I'm like, oh, this is just basically like an Assassin's Creed mission <laughs> where you're trailing a target. <laughs> it's so good. And like he reaches over and grabs an apple and you can see like press Y to it's so fucking good. Again, maybe this is uh, a, like material to me enjoying it, but I really did enjoying enjoy seeing that and being like oh this is a silent hill game and like nothing about the scene disproving that to me just felt really rewarding as as much tell as you what yeah go ahead i was gonna say tell you what uh if if by chance i managed to snag an interview with bygone for his next movie i will absolutely bring this up and and talk to him about the video and i'll try to find that uh interview and maybe send it to our like little chat to see if he uh he talks more about the games that he I plays. Would, Natalie, I would nothing nothing would mean more to me and Jason than you asking Bygone about Silent Hill Two. Honestly, and like as much as I hate to validate gaming talk on this podcast, I don't, Cody. I don't really dislike that at all. Uh, I also thought specifically of Silent Hill Two a lot while playing this game. I mean, he's good. he's just confronted with the fact that his personality flaws have caused him to fail, and that all he can do is endlessly relitigate those failures. And the woman that he loved, whose death maybe he helped play a part in, comes back as another woman, slightly more salacious and slightly more like uh, fantastically dressed with different hair. This is Silent Hill too. Uh, Kylie Boogaloo. It's so fucking good. I love this whole last segment. Um, 
and yeah, uh, without Cody I've, here, I've, we can feel free to do that. Yeah, I have I have one more Please. little bit that uh, I wanted to bring up when you talked about uh, the like prompt to press Y to grab Apple, which is a uh, uh, in terms of like me learning new things about this, uh, I was alerted to uh, a frankly like uh, galling piece of uh, trivia that like came to my attention when I uh, like retweeted a, a joke post of mine from like two or three years ago where um uh uh online friend of mine slash uh critic uh ryan swen uh made a note of uh something uh that he had learned from the commentary of this movie which is uh the apple that he eats in the dream sequence uh accidentally coated in motor oil after it was bucked from the horse and that is why it is that (laughs) unpleasant for uh Huang Dre to eat on screen. What he is like fucking he is masking it. <laughs> yeah, well, and, he, and he's like, we're fucking fifty minutes into this shot. God damn it! Like this <laughs> yeah. apple is going in my body. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is that is commitment to the art. Uh. And I I think that 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 really wraps it all up in some way. And that sometimes art is synthesizing the video games that you love. Sometimes it's synthesizing the, the movies that you love and the memories that you love into new forms. Sometimes it's eating a gross ass apple. (laughs) Sometimes it's eating a gross ass apple. Thank you, Natalie so much for being on our podcast. Uh, You can check out more about this movie at, uh, well, wherever it's streaming. I think I saw it on Amazon. Uh, I think it's on canopy Is it on canopy as well. Uh, Cody's not here to advocate for canopy. So I appreciate that you are, um we have got a whole fun slate of movies coming to try love check them out at trylon.org we'll be covering here and there uh natalie hope it's not too long before the next time we hear from you where can people find you in the meantime between now and your next episode of try love yeah i am natalie's not in it on most of the things uh twitter instagram whatever people are using these days i don't really know the the internet is kind of a weird fractured place kind of like the the memories and uh iterations of this film um uh but yeah uh more writing to come being shared there uh constantly i feel like the last thing that i had done was the uh michael shannon interview Mm -hmm. uh which is really good yeah that that was really fun and uh i look forward to more hopefully i don't know what's going on really at this point in time well somebody somebody that's been on our podcast interviewed michael shannon which is fucking (laughs) that's just fucking mind-blowing natalie star keeper keeps rising uh follow follow her wherever you find her in the show notes and across the internet to keep up with it uh happy belated birthday natalie by the way thank you and uh your second appearance excuse me your first appearance on trial of was two years ago this week uh, for the third man. Go back and listen to that episode. If you like Natalie's opinions about this movie or any others that she's been on, go back in our backlog, catch a movie that you've seen before. Um, Keep an eye out for some cool stuff. We're hoping to do uh, in episode 300, Uh, you know, just, Hey, follow try love. We're on the up and up Uh, 300 episodes. I think is going to be our, it's going to be our day guys. Um, but yeah, check us out. At Just as I'm hitting the big three Oh, you're hitting the big, big three. Oh, hell yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, check it out at trial of podcast on Twitter. Check out the trial on at trial on cinema, check out, uh, and trial Um, anybody remember the guy who was supposed to be here for the last half hour of this uh, po- podcast? Anybody remember that there was another per- for some reason, I have this hazy memory of somebody who joined us for the beginning of this, but I can't remember. Uh, he might I think be- he said some dumb shit about how the genre stuff in this movie wasn't actually good, and he- then we all kind of got his ass about it. <laughs> you may or may not be able to find him on Twitter at RBPlease and Blue Sky at RBPlease. Uh, you will be able to find uh, co-host Cody Narverson, who is unable to join. He is out traveling on, he's, you know, our cinema correspondent at uh, Cody BH on Blue Sky and Twitter, wherever else you are. Uh, and me, 
little old me. I'm Jason Daphnis. I help make the show. Thank you again, Natalie. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Yeah, just a, one quick shout out to Cody. I know he loves this movie. I asked him for advice after I watched it. I texted him and said, what am I supposed to do now that I've seen Long Day's Journey into Night? And he just texted me back, try not to melt, <laughs> which I, I think is, is about right. So uh, thank you for that advice, Cody. Um, I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Punish Talking.